Dear, dear listener, hi, this is John Dupuy. I want to ask a favor of you. If you like the podcast, uh, Deep Transformation, and you're getting a lot out of it, could you please help us by going to wherever you get your podcast, it's a Spotify or Apple or wherever it is, and write, write a review. That would really help us to get this out. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're really praying and hoping this is helping people and being part of the solution. So if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated by Roger, myself, and our team. God bless. Thank you. Hey, brothers and sisters, John Dupuy here. Roger and I are getting ready to emerge in this conversation even more deeply. The questions of chronic illness, of suffering, of human purpose and meaning, and ultimately of love. I don't think you're going to miss this. It's very deep and it is very transformational. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit. Life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. And Lynn, there's something very important you said that I want to, I want to make sure we we go back to because it was just one line you said. Said it really brings up the question: What are the essential things in life? What are, what do you find people finding as essential? Well, perhaps self knowledge is mm-hmm. one of those because you're lying in bed for hours on end. You're thinking. Many people are thinking. They're they're questioning. They're questioning themselves. They're questioning everything. That can lead. That can be very difficult. That can be a really negative thing, and people can can end up ruminating and and being a bad place. But you can also that can also bring you to some great, much deeper understanding of who you are. I think it helps you recognize the need for other people for community. That if you can find other people in these circumstances and relate to them, I think I think that's another really important thing. I think a spiritual connection, whether to God or whatever greater source you find, I think that's that's something else that's essential. I would say. Well, you wrote the book on that, Roger. I should be telling you <laughs> essential spirituality, but I don't know. I think it brings you back to to real basics. And also maybe just appreciating the small things in life. You know, when the sun comes through your window and it's a gorgeous morning and the the trees have frost on them and you can see that, or maybe somebody has a a pet and they can connect to the the pet. I don't know. It's, I don't know. I think everybody finds their own thing and and everybody you talk to might say something different, I suppose, as to what, what has been meaningful to them. Well, certainly you mentioned one of the things that I I hear a lot, and particularly as people approach death, and that is an appreciation of each moment or the small things of life, a sunset, a breeze on the face. I remember Ramdas after his stroke saying, ah, oh, how beautiful, just to feel the breeze on my cheek, you know, mm-hmm. and those kind of things. And, and also often the lament, how sad that we had to wait until we were close to death to learn these things about what's really important. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. We're so good at distracting ourselves. I mean, I think I started out talking about that. You know, I distract myself, I think. But 
And if we really stop doing that, or we are forced to stop doing them, and all of those distractions when you can't go out and play tennis when you're feeling bad, or you, you know, you, you, you just can't brush it off, then, you know, something else opens up, I think. Yes. Yeah, you know, ultimately, if you're talking about the very, you mentioned the very successful, I mean, what's seen as successful in our culture, right? You, you know, you have the yacht, you started the the, um, the company and it's all over the place and everybody thinks you're great and smart and they interview you because you're such a great success. Well, at some point, even that becomes empty and vacuous. Yeah. And whether you have a chronic illness or you're an alcoholic or, you know, you're a heroin addict or whatever it might be, it all comes down to the essential human reality that we need to find God. Yeah. And uh, that's why way of putting it. But I think uh, all you you know, folks know what you mean, what that means to you, that ground of being depth, contact with or the realization of it's a little bit even sometimes makes everything mysteriously OK. You know, all the all the all the all the bad stuff and all the horror and all the pain and suffering somehow is is redeemed when we, we hit that essential level of being, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's beautifully said, John. Well, it's going to ask more about the the practice side or the transforming illness into a into a spiritual practice. That you know, I'm a very dedicated spiritual practitioner, but I get sick and suddenly some, my idealism and motivation just evaporates. It's like uh, uh, I'm not sure I have the energy to get up and me- and meditate or to do whatever. So I wonder if in chronic illness, more of the path has to be about what is traditionally called surrender. Surrender not in the sense of mm-hmm. giving up, but in but in offering oneself to something larger. Does that resonate? Oh, I think yes, absolutely. And it's suffering is, I mean, a surrender is so often misunderstood, I think. It is seen as giving up. And people, you know, there's a natural impetus to fight against suffering and to say, I I will do everything I can. And I'm going to, you know, go to the next doctor, and I'm going to solve this problem. And so it's very, very difficult, I think, to surrender, just the idea that that I'm not going to get out of this. I, I'm, you know, and if I stop fighting, somehow, I'm, I'm giving into my illness and all that kind of thing. But ultimately, I think, I think we need another word, somehow, that surrender means as you said, like like becoming larger, becoming connected to to something deeper, and and letting this this personal self be be run by that instead of by our own our own desires and our own push for things, and and that can mean that people continue to look for how to make their health better. It doesn't mean that 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 they've tossed it all aside, and now I'm just going to be spiritual and and give myself to God. No, it means God will, well, to me anyway, it means God will work through us and in, 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 and we'll just make ourselves a, a useful vehicle, not not get in the way. Was it the phrase my, somebody said something about what makes you think that your plan for your life is better than God's plan for your life? <laughs> um, and I just think that's a great question to ask. And so if we just let go of this fixation on my plan for my life and how it's, you know, how it's got to go, then all sorts of things can arise. You know, who knows, who knows what's going to happen? You don't know, but it seems to me like it might be a better plan. And and what you said about surrender, you know, that connotates defeat. And, and what you're talking there is not defeat. It is in some 
since the opposite, it's the acceptance, it's the realization, it's expanding. Oh, I'm, yes, I'm this person suffering in this little situation that really sucks, but I'm something infinitely more than that at the same time. And obviously this has to be more than a intellectual idea that has to be an experience between, you know, us and, and, and the mystery, right? Yeah. And I think we have to honor the struggle in getting there. I was thinking of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief, you know, starting out with, with denial and then going to anger, bargaining, can't remember them all anyway, but ending up with acceptance. And I think later added transcendence. It takes some doing to get there and it takes, it's not just a one-way path. It's looping back. I mean, it's, you know, you have cancer and, and you're in denial and you work, you get angry and you work through it. And then finally you come to acceptance and then you get a new symptom and you have to start over again with maybe denial and, and moving forward. So it's a, I think it's we have to respect people's journey because it's so easy to go in and say, well, all you need to do is surrender, which is another one of these little pieces of advice that that are given to the people who are ill. And people who are ill get advice from everybody. I mean, you sit next to somebody in a bus and they've got a, an answer for you. They have no, no conception of what you've been dealing with for 30 years, no conception that you've probably tried everything they're going to suggest, and they feel completely okay, telling you, you need to surrender, or you need this and that and the other. And I think we have to be really careful about forcing even that onto people, even saying that's it's a shoulds. When we put a should on anybody who's ill, I think we don't know what's going on with them. We don't know how much they're suffering. And that's, that's something that it's fixing. We try to fix people. We can't stand it that they're not doing well. So we go in and we tell them, well, you just need to do this. So the the advice can range from the really stupid to the very profound, but it's still giving advance uh, advice. And I've been so guilty of that. I have been so guilty of wanting to fix. Well, if you only did this, if you just did this. And many times I've been wrong. I mean, in some ways, blessedly wrong, because that taught me, stop doing this, Lynn. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Somebody, you give advice and somebody follows it and it doesn't go well. well. That's so. What should we do, Lynn, when we're confronted with that, even ourselves or with uh, with our loved ones or people we meet on the street? You know. Well, that's a really good question. I think listen, just listen and try to understand. I mean, my son tells me I don't understand, and I I really don't. He, he's correct. I don't understand, but at least the effort to listen and to try to see from their perspective to ask questions. Oh, what are you doing to handle this? Instead of saying, I just read this article and it says you should blah, blah, blah. So I think, yeah, listen to people. Let them tell you what they need. That came home. <laughs> it's my son's birthday today. And I had this great idea of bringing family and friends over to sing happy birthday. Well, my, my daughter said, you know, you might want to ask him first. And I did. And that was not at all what he wanted. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought... Okay, I'm I'm too too ready to make assumptions about what is what is needed, and I don't ask enough questions about what do you really need. So beautiful point. And as I read your book, The Koan of Chronic Illness, I was struck by my own reactions to it, and I could feel myself as you presented the extraordinary challenge of chronic illness. I could feel myself tensing and getting anxious, and could see how so much of what you were pointing to in our dysfunctional responses to, to chronic illness, 
denying it in others, uh, minimizing, distancing ourselves from people with it, was a defensive strategy, which I could see arising in myself, that this is a big confrontation. And if one, we really let in the principle that anything that, can ha- that happens to a human being can happen to me, this is chronic illness is really scary, and I'm in good health, but it, it's just scary letting in that how much suffering pe- so many people are going through, and that this could happen to me at any moment. That's right. Yeah, I, that's a really good point, Roger. I think we don't realize we don't want to know that we don't want to think that this life that we have all planned for ourselves and that's going you know, relatively well, that suddenly could just be whipped away from us. That's not something we want to think about. And if it happens, it's not something we want to think about then. And it sometimes takes years, years and years to adapt to the fact that, yes, this is really happening to me. And then it opens up the questions, well, what's life all about? Oh, I thought life was to 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 do something and to produce and to, you know, these different worldviews about what life is all about. And then all of a sudden you can't do whatever the worldview you and your friends hold. You you can't be that that group member who's out there, you know, baking cookies for the for the crowd. You can't be the successful guy climbing the ladder. You can't even be the compassionate, loving, caring person you want to be because you feel too sick to do it. And as we all know, you know, like if you get the flu and people come around, you bark at them. It's like, go, go away. I, you know, I can't deal with this. Don't talk to me now. And so I think there was a, what, Damo Camellias, there was a um, a film many, many years ago about a woman dying, and she was just this wonderful, spiritual, lovely person, and she was held up as this model for, for you know, the suffering. And it's just, it's models like that that are, are terrible put on people, like you should be. Mm. Oh, kind and loving and sweet and accept your illness and all this. And most people don't, they're annoyed. They don't like it. Their back hurts or, you know, they, they, they have stomach problems and they, you know, and and they're irritable. And we have to let them be irritable, too. I think we have to say, OK, you get to be irritable. This is this is not fun. I get it. So I'll sit around even if you bark at me. So, you know, which is a very mature response and not an easy one. No. And, it's, and especially the further you are from the person. If you're a spouse or a parent, you can allow them to bark a little bit. If you're a friend, they bark a couple of times, you're gone. If it's a, a stranger, you know, there's going to be no further connection. So, yeah, it is hard. And I, you just said easier for a an intimate partner, for example, a spouse or, or a parent or, or, or a child. But in some ways, I would imagine it'd be harder receiving that from that kind of negativity from someone you're really close to. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it is painful. It's painful. So you're, you know, you're doing everything you can to help your spouse and they're just grumbling at you. It doesn't feel good. And you want to grumble back. So, well, that's one of those things that in relationships, that's a growth path. How do we, how do we navigate this? And, and how do we leave room for each party to have their feelings about the situation instead of turning it into, well, we'll all be sweetness and light. You know, that's that'd be wonderful. But we have to realize we're human beings and, and we're going to have these feelings. And how how do we deal with those? Do we talk about them? Where is where is the place for acceptance and sacrifice? And where is the place for 
taking care of yourself, for instance, if you're a, a caregiver, because sacrifice is needed. And I think that that's become a bad word in a lot of new age circles that you shouldn't do that. But I think it becomes necessary. You do have to put aside your own concerns because other people, you know, some people are just so ill, they, they can't give back in that way. But you also have to take care of yourself. You also have to not accept abuse. And where is where is that line? If you are in a, a strong relationship, ideally, you can work through that. Again, with illness, a lot of uh, relationships fail. The healthy party leaves the the ill party more more often than not, but sometimes the ill party is unable to tolerate living with the other person and will go as well. So relationships break up over illness. And with children, very often, one person is the designated caregiver and everybody else just sits back and doesn't do much. So, yeah, I mean, there are these thorny questions to which there are no answers. <laughs> you know, it's just case by case. You're making me appreciate uh, anew the the traditional Christian vow for marriage in sickness and in health. I mm. mean, I've kind of you know probably a lot of us said said that and, and certainly heard it lots of times. But it's right now it's taking on a whole other weight as I reflect on it. I mean, to do that consciously, which probably most of us didn't do, but, but to do it consciously, that's a big commitment. Yeah. Until death do us part. Yeah. It's like, whoa. Not, you know, I'm not saying, you know, I, I lived in Australia in a time before do- divorce was really legal, and I saw the complications of that. But, but on the other hand, to do that kind of commitment as a spiritual practice, that's, a, that's an advanced training. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Not to say that you want to force people who are making each other miserable to stay together, but if we can approach, well, all of our relationships really like that. Why should, if you have a friend that's sick, why sh- why shouldn't you be there for them when they're sick as well as well? But often we don't know how. I think I think that's something that we need to do is somehow teach people how. How to be with a person who's suffering in any respect. I mean, we're not very good at it. We we shy away not only from illness, but we shy away from grief. We shy away from a lot of really difficult situations. And so we have a friend and maybe they've just lost a spouse. And a lot of people, you know, will step back, step away. They don't know how to be present to grief, how to be present to those difficult sides of life. They want to say, oh, well, you know, it'll get better. And, you know, soon you'll be feeling blah, blah, blah. And it's not really that bad. And, and we say all these things that sound like we're trying to be comforting, but they aren't actually really comforting. And in many cases, they're trying to deal with their own discomfort. And I, I look yeah. back with such pain at some of the things I said as a as a medical intern, you know, I was what twenty five or twenty six, and people were dying, and I was talking with their spouses and supposedly giving advice. Well, what the hell did I know? I mean, I just looked back with horror at some of the things I I said. I, I'm just it pains me deeply, but and people want to be helpful, and and and. And as you say, something very, you said something really important, Ellen, you know, most of us don't know how to be, how to respond. So if someone loses a spouse, you know, it's like there's a, there's a, 
fear about what if I say the wrong thing or whatever, you know, so so in some ways it's easier to avoid. Yeah, I mean, it is true. And you have to be sympathetic for people in that situation too, because it isn't easy. And what, it, you know, what do people say? And, and should they even be spending their life? I had a, a friend I used to walk with every morning and she would every day ask me how my son was. And every day it was not good. And it got to be like, you know, I didn't want her to ask me anymore because I didn't want to, you know, put her in the position of having to say, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, it just, it's one of those things. There's, we don't have any training in this. How, how, how do we, how do we relate around these really difficult issues of life? And, and most of us are not really very good at, well, I've discovered the older I get, we're not really very good at anything. I mean, I discovered <laughs> you bring up the subject and actually, you know, when I was 30, I might've thought I was doing just fine, but now I look back and I think, no, I don't think so. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's saying, ours longer, vita, vita brevis, art is yeah. long, life is short. Well, learning how to learning how to live is the great art of all, and life is very short for that. You know, that's another thing I think about, you know, you think about why should people get ill and, and lose the opportunity? Why should we die so soon when we're just beginning? I think, you know, mm-hmm. beginning to get some ideas to how to live and then whoop, we're gone. Yeah, and <laughs> I find it very humbling to remember that I have, you know, in my now my 70s, I have lived longer than probably 99% of the humans that have ever lived on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And I'm still beginning. It's like, oh, okay, now, now maybe I could begin to manage life. Begin. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We need to extend life so we can get a whole body of people that are actually old enough to to live a good life, and 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 there are enough of them, you know, in their 80s, 90s, 120s, 130s. My, you know, they might have it together by that point, and then they could. Well, let's also acknowledge that. That it's that it's not a given, and you know there's a whole new emerging field of wisdom research, and of course the the conventional assumption is aging brings wisdom. Well, it's pretty clear from research it doesn't. Oh, is that right? And if as, as the imagine, a, average American spends five times a, five hours a day in front of a television, big surprise. Yeah, you know, that's not exactly a wisdom curriculum. So it looks like there's a small subset of people who do actually grow significantly wiser as they age. But for the majority of people, it's just not true. And we need to, that's a humbling and very, very tragic and sad realization, particularly given the social and global crises we're facing at this time, when we are in a desperate imbalance between wisdom and the challenges we face. Wow. That's really a depressing thought. I, you know, I think I had in the back of my mind that people did actually grow wiser with with age. Some some do, a lot don't. Yeah. Yeah. yeah certainly possible, but in part it's a choice, in part it's a result of privilege, in part it's a, it's a result of being exposed to and undertaking practices of one kind, or simply doing, as you pointed out earlier, Lynn, something that chronic illness may force us to do, and that is to reflect on ourselves and our lives. Yeah. And reflection is one of the key practices which does inter- does in fact cultivate wisdom. Yeah, I would think that and responsibility, taking responsibility. Taking responsibility for one's life. Yes, in yeah. in psychotherapy as far as I can see perhaps one of the key determinants of whether a person will 
will learn and grow is how much responsibility they're willing to take for their life. But, but, and this is getting back to one of your earlier points, Lynn, responsibility, not as it's usually conventionally understood as, oh, I'm guilty. I'm responsible. I'm bad. I, it's no, the capacity, the ability to choose my responses. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a key distinction. And to bring that back to illness, I think something Terry Patton said was, I'm not responsible for my illness, but I'm now responsible to my illness. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say something I have found and I almost died at a massive heart attack. You know, they were able to get in there and put a splint in to open this thing up, but I would die. I was just praying. Okay, God's my time. And my original spiritual experience or opening was God is love. God is everywhere. God is here. You know, and what do I do with that? That became my go-on, right? For the rest of my life. But as practice has become a major part of my everyday life and the second person relationship with God, you know, and I've seen that in devout Jews. I've seen that in Sufis, for sure. I mean, the ones I've read about, I haven't known that many. Definitely in in, uh, devout Christians and in the Native American circles where, you know, they pray a lot, you know, and the the great spirit. And it's really helpful for me because, you know, you can just say, God, I'm so fucked up. I don't know what's up or down. I've been meditating for God knows how many years. I think I suck at it, you know, and what I really need to do is experience your presence. So uh, please help. You know, because I am in some ways, I'm magnificent. In other words, I'm just a wreck and I'm, I'm I'm wretched, you know, and just being able to, and even Jesus, you know, allegedly said on the cross, you know, why hast thou forsaken me? We go through those moments, but I think that struggle and that, that realization of others being there and being present is, is a, a great help. And hopefully while we have our health, we can develop a capacity for deep prayer and deep relationship with spirit, with God, however we want to phrase that, and with others and with nature and with the all, but a, a deeply personal thing and being able to be admitted, you know, this is way, I'm in way over my head, don't know how to deal. So please be here with me. And, you know, here I am. Thank you. I, I love it. Yeah, I love that. I love what you said. I, when you said God is here, I thought, well, God is here with illness too. Yeah. God is here. We don't see it. And and that's a good question. How is God here with me as a caregiver? How is God here with me as a as a patient? Or ideally, providers would say that too. Yeah. I remember having uh, a really difficult conversation to, that I had to have one time, and I thought, what am I going to do? And I thought, well, I'm going to take God with me. <laughs> you know, my conception. It was amazing how much better it went. Just that simple act, you know. All right, God is here. So it's not all up to me. I don't have to solve this whole thing somehow. God is here. That's the way I feel with this podcast each time. Like, okay, God, you know, we, we've done our little part now, and, and and only you can make this happen, you know, or, or whatever this needs to be. So there, there's and she seems to come through remarkably well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes it does. Oh. I think that's a great way to approach life, you know, because by golly, I have no idea what's going to happen. So right. I just, okay, whatever it does. And, and I, want to, I want to come back to something that you implied, John, just a moment ago, and you briefly responded to Lynn, but that is, and I hadn't thought of this before, but 
let me back up and give a context. In Greek philosophy, the, there was the idea that philosophy, the love of wisdom, is practice for dying. In other traditions, in Buddhism, for example, the first noble truth that life contains suffering, this unsatisfactoriness, and that our practice is to enable us to, to handle this. And so one thing I'm taking from this conversation is, given that all of us are going to either have a chronic illness, or a significant illness, or we're going to die first very quickly, it seems like one of the implications of this is it would be really smart on our part to do some spiritual practice in a preparation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think so. I think for people who have done that, who have a meditative practice, who have a, a spiritual connection at some point, I think they do better. They do better with any problem in life because there's there's something larger to hold it in. It's not just me, the body, mind here facing down this this foe, but there's something larger that I'm a part of that maybe can help me encompass this this foe in some way. Well, you know, and, and one of the things I do is I'm the CEO of Iowa Technologies, which is creating audio tools, you know, to, to help people go deep and go into deeper brainwave states where we can more effectively pray, if you will, and, and find those answers. And if anybody's out there who's suffering from chronic illness or something will contact us, I'll send you what we got. Okay, if that's what it's there for. So uh, that's great. I didn't realize you had specific things tailored like that. That's great. Well, most most of them are tailored for for deep meditation, but sometimes people can find them very useful when you can't do any other kind of meditation, just to sit there and listen to these things. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, each individual would have a different experience. But if you are so inclined or feel called to to do that, don't let something silly like money get in the way. Let us know. You know. It's all it's all yours. No, thank you, John. Thank you. Beautiful, beautiful, John. Lynn, I'd like to take this into a still larger context and think of and thinking of now of, of chronic illness as one form of the potential sufferings that all of us potentially face as human beings. And I mentioned a little while back, a while back, the Buddha's first noble truth that unsatisfactoriness, suffering isn't quite an adequate translation. It's a, it's a more subtle, nuanced term. Dukkha is the original Pali term. It's more nuanced, more broad, et cetera, than just physical or even emotional suffering. But, but this, this idea that this is part of life and the beginning of Buddhist practice is so-called right view. And part of that right view is the understanding that all of us are going to face challenges and suffering in life, of which chronic illness is one and one of the most challenging. But I want to put this in a larger context now. Okay, given that all of us are going to be deeply challenged in life in some way or other, what are some of the lessons that you think can be generalized from your experience of working with chronic illness? Well, yeah, I think it does bring up that point that that suffering is in life and life is in suffering and we cannot separate the two. That's the yin-yang symbol. We cannot just cut out the suffering part and go and live the non-suffering part. They are intimately interconnected. And illness really shows us that, that we have to be able to accept that as part of life, that these negative aspects, what we 
term negative when we want to cut a boundary and we want to set them over there on the other side. They, we can't do that. They are in, intimately interwoven in our lives. And I think we have, for me, in a way, that's my current spiritual practice is, is trying to integrate joy and sorrow. And I'm always having little experiences of bliss. I look outside, it's so gorgeous. And I stub my knee against a chair. And it's like, they're both there. I cannot just have one without the other. And I think we need to do that as a society. We don't want to embrace the, the negative. Uh, and I really mean embrace. I mean, as part of us and to welcome in. We don't want to welcome in people who show us our frailty, people who are ill and show us that we might be. We don't even want to acknowledge it in, in ourselves. I mean, all of us, somebody said, you know, when you're born, you start dying. It's just like that. Bob Dylan, actually. <laughs> Bob Dylan was it, yeah. So I, I think we just have to recognize that life is big enough to hold all of that. And it, it has to have all of that, that there's no way to slice out the bad. So I don't know if that's where you were going, Roger, but that's what came to me when you... Yeah, well, that that's certainly one good angle. And it occurs to me in response to what you're saying, uh, the importance of opening to the wholeness of life, both the, mm -hmm. both the pain and the, and the bliss that in some ways that goes against the growing cultural narrative, because one of the side effects of our growing technological and medical success has been that we've, we've managed to eradicate significant kinds of suffering that were just a part and parcel of, of life for everyone, you know, children, most children died in the first year, etc. Most diseases had no cure. And, and fortunately, we've raised the bar dramatically. But the cost of that has been the illusion that we can get rid of suffering, that it's, it's something, you know, minor. And I remember one of the great shocks for me, <laughs> to go in medical school, I did three years of preclinical training, and then went into the went on to the wards. And I've, oh, I just assumed that most illnesses were curable, and here were all these people with with illnesses that were, could be ameliorated or helped, but weren't curable. I mean, I was shocked. Yeah, I, I think so, and I think that yes, you know, we don't want to downplay the amazing things that we have been able to do and the amazing suffering that we have been able to eradicate. But in a way, we have brought on new suffering. I mean, there's a massive amount of depression and anxiety today. Because of technology, some blame it on technology, you know, because technology has distanced us from each other. It has created a lot of tension in itself. I mean, just try using a computer all day and pretty soon you're depressed and anxious. So, you know, we've traded one kind, maybe we've traded concrete suffering for subtle suffering in a way, because it seems to me that our societies are deeply troubled, deeply troubled in, in a subtle way, even though maybe more people have enough to eat and more people are healthier and things like that. Well, there's a very important principle called the, the dialectic of progress, which points out that every advance, social advance, cures some problems, but also introduces new ones. And mm -hmm. it's the very nature of, uh, of existence. Above, and there's also a dialectic of development that as we mature and grow, 
each developmental stage reduces or removes some forms of suffering and pro- certain kinds of problems, but it opens us to new ones. And as you said, often they're more subtle and they're a little more challenging both to recognize and then we have to figure out how to work with those too. But yeah, and the uh, yeah. and I remember my one of my teachers, Lama Suridas, who was a Tibetan Buddhist, is a Tibetan Buddhist and did two of the th- traditional three-year, three-month, three-day retreats. And one of the things this teacher said on the last couple of days of one of these marathon retreats was, well, just because you've done this, don't don't expect that suffering is going to end. You may be able to respond to it much better. But there's going to be, as long as there's life, there are various kinds of suffering. And that's not a narrative that any of us want to hear individually or psychologically. But it's also a narrative that our very technological success as a culture has mitigate it it goes against the stream of the 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 ever better, ever improving, less suffering or more wonderful type of narrative we we have for a long time lived under. Of course, now it's it's much challenged by the social and global challenges we face, but but that has been a narrative. Yeah, I mean, that is a worldview that is so prevalent. It's very, very strong, particularly in this country. And then we have the other one, which is this narrative, you create your own reality, which also says you shouldn't have bad things in that reality. And if you do, you're somehow to blame. So even though that narrative may be a little improvement on on the progress forever one, it still is, is, I think, it's not it's not getting to the point and i think yes there's always going to be suffering and people don't like that they don't want to hear that but but the promise the the way out is how you relate to that suffering and that's what i think the spiritual traditions tell us that that yes there's suffering here but how do you hold that suffering and that's where the koan comes in again how do you relate yes there's terrible suffering well look at ukraine look at I mean, we're not ridding ourselves of that. I know there's this this vision everybody has of living forever in a beautiful, environmentally perfect, non-combative world. But we're, we're not quite yet there yet. We're not quite. I think several hundred thousand, maybe years from from that, even if that is possible. So, how, given we have to live now, how do we relate to that? And that's that's I think the question for somebody with illness is how do I relate to this illness? And that's the question for all of us with regard to suffering. Well, well let, let me say that I'm, I'm very empathic and I've really been suffering and going to dark places in this conversation because it's not an easy conversation. And what I, make, what I am experiencing now and perhaps is the answer to the koan that you presented in your book is love oh. and the realization of love. And perhaps that is a whole new koan, you know, what? And that, that was what I was shown when I was 11 years old. And that's what I'm being shown right now. And tremendous love I'm feeling for you and for your son and for your family and the people that you're bringing into consciousness. And my, my brothers and sisters in the Ukraine and the Russian soldiers have been forced into this horrible, I mean, the whole thing that there is redemptive power in that. And yeah, and somehow that makes it okay. And if Jesus had anything to teach us, that was it, you know, and all the great teachers, there it is. Yeah. 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 
beautiful. And it cuts through everything. It cuts through worldviews. It cuts through individual preferences and demands. And yeah. And then how do we do that? How do we love each other? That's that's a con. That is definitely one of life's great cons. Yeah. The con of chronic illness, as you titled your book, and the con of how do we live in love together? Yeah. And it's I think what you're implying, John, is that these are very much related, you know, as we yeah. as we face into chronic illness and the possibility that this too this too can happen to me. And how do we relate to our friends who have chronic illness? You know, yeah, love seems love may be key. And I know for myself, I'm you know, I'm now in my seventies, I'm very have a very privileged life, and somehow I've had managed to live with extraordinary good health. I've had some you know things, but there've been inconveniences rather than rather than life threatening or to, de, totally debilitating. And what I find is it feels like walking through a minefield. More and more friends are getting blown up in one way or another, neither with illnesses or something or other. And these days, of course, more and more friends dealing with long haul COVID. So it's like one, even if one escapes oneself for a while, one's life is still changed and one's relationships still change. Yeah, we're all touched. I mean, uh, we can't escape it. We try. <laughs> Sometimes we do try to run away, but we can't. We can't. If it's not in us, it's in our, our spouse, it's in our neighborhood, it's in our friends. I think your empathic nature, John, leads you to be able to embrace that. I think I think that's a beautiful thing, even though it's very painful, I think, to be able to to feel like that. And that's that is what will bring us together, that kind of feeling. Instead of trying to run away, trying instead of trying to escape. And so, you know, how do we love? In a way, first of all, we have to face the problem. We have to face the people who are suffering and figure out how to relate to them. You know, and we have it right now. You know, I have this moment where none of us are spring chickens. I think we've arrived at that in this conversation. And but we're here right now. And I've I've had a very powerful experience with with you and i hope the people that are with us are experiencing that too that is still mysterious and still a koan but it's very real it's very yeah. real and it is redemptive i guess that's a, the word that comes to me so and anyway thank you roger and and thank you lynn so much for being who you are and and all the nobility with which you've loved your life and so much that you've given is just it's incredibly moving for me yeah. You make me want to cry. Very beautiful. And I noticed, you know, as I read your book, The Cohen of Chronic Illness, I noticed my fear, just the fear of recognizing the enormity of the suffering of chronic illness. And this too could be me. This too may well be me. And what I notice in our conversation at this moment now is that, oh, the other side of that confrontation with this enormity of suffering is to the extent that. I can open to it, then there's empathy and compassion. And that feels that feels very valuable and very important. And very, yeah. So thank you. Lynn. Lynn, this has been an amazing discu discussion. And your book is The Cohen of Chronic Illness is an amazing book. Is there anything you'd like to say before we come to an end? You know, I just want to say that this has been such a pleasure for me because I feel heard. I feel 
loved here. It's been just a, a beautiful conversation, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Well, as John said, thank you very much for all the work you've done, the many gifts you've given to so many people. You've touched John's life, my life, just by the by putting on this wonderful conference you put on a couple of months ago. And you've now touched us both uh, very deeply with your your work on chronic illness, and I highly recommend your book, The Colon of Chronic Illness. It's just a, a very, it's a challenging read, but it's also a very powerful and very important one. I hope it gets the attention and audience it deserves. Thank you. And if, and if people want to, I'm also starting, I have a course series that's, that runs through a lot of what's in the book, and it starts in January, if anybody's interested in joining that. If the book is challenging, the, the course might be less so. <laughs> okay, good. Well, we will put that in the show notes. Lynn, thank you so very much for both this dialogue and even, even more for the incredible work you're doing in the world and the way you're helping so many people. Yeah, thank you, everyone, that's being here with us uh, via the miracle of the internet. Keep loving, and we love you. <laughs> thank you, <laughs> and thank you. I love your podcast. It's beautiful. So thank you for working. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John Roger and the Deep Transformation Team.